Man, you guys started off strong. Are you excited to be here? <clears throat> hey, if we haven't met before, my name is Fred. I've been hanging around CSF for a long time. Actually joining staff next month. So um, it's great for me, probably just okay for you, but really, really excited about that. Uh, hey, thanks for coming today. We know that it's an investment of a Saturday and a busy season. Uh, we, we believe that you're here because you're hungry. Are you hungry today for the Lord? And we're going to feast together. I want to tell you before we start, if you leave today hungry spiritually, it's your fault, right? Because there's so much God wants to pour into you today. So this is our theme, feast. And I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a second and picture your version of a feast. Where are you? What's on the table? Who is with you? Okay, open your eyes. Maybe uh, some of you guys were at a holiday. You were at your Thanksgiving table, Christmas table, 4th of July cookout. Some of you might have been at a tailgate or maybe CSF pancakes, perhaps, could have been that. Uh, maybe some of you were at your favorite buffet restaurant, Brazilian steakhouse. Uh, most of us have an idea of, of what a feast means. And even if you're one of those few people who's not into food, and we know there are a few of you out there. Uh, chances are you know how to feast on something else. Some of you love to feast on music. So the idea of going to a festival where there's band after band after band, you're just, you're just devouring it. You're just soaking it in. Some of us love to feast on art. So the opportunity to go to a museum or a gallery and just sit and take in work after work after work of creation and beauty. Some of you feast on relationships. And so a chance to be in a setting like this, or, or to be with your friends, or to be home with your family. Even if you don't like food, we all know how to feast, how to eat more than we should, how to savor, and how to delight. In, in our session this morning, I simply want to take some time to tell you where that comes from. Why it is that we all like to eat, we, we all love beauty, we all love people to varying degrees, I get it, but we all know what it's like to hunger and to eat our fill, and then for good measure, to eat even a little bit more. This is our theme verse for the day. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard that before? It's actually one of the Beatitudes. This is a core teaching of Jesus where he's talking about the kingdom of God and what God values. Um, some would frame it up this way. Jesus is describing the good life, the life that God blesses. And in the midst of a, a pretty succinct teaching that includes teachings on persecution and peacemaking and humility, here's this word about hunger. God blesses hungry and thirsty people, and he loves to fill us up. Now, Jesus summarizes it that way, but this theme of hunger and feasting actually traces through the whole scripture. It's all the way through the, the story of God and humanity from the beginning to the very end. And so in the time we've got together, I want you to consider this simple idea. It's God who sets the table for us to feast. The one who made you, imagined you, designed you, loves you, put in you this capacity to just eat more than you should, and to delight, and to savor. In our time, we're just going to start in the beginning, we're going to go to the end, and I'm going to just highlight for you the way God sets the table 
over and over and over again for us. Let's start in the beginning. Let's start at creation if we can. God, in the beginning, designed you to feast. When God imagined what you would be like, what I would be like, he gave us bodies that would need nourishment. And not just nourishment once a year, once a month, every day. For most of us, multiple times a day. And he not only gave us some kind of internal desire for that, but he built us to feast. He gave us, if we're born with all the parts that we're usually given, a stomach, right? Your stomach is an an organ about the size of your fist. Most adult stomachs are about the same size. And what's fascinating about your stomach is that it actually has the capacity to expand. Your stomach can grow three to four times its normal size. Now, if you're thinking about human history and when we were hunter-gatherers, you might be thinking, well, that was beneficial because if you, you, know, you came upon a big score, you, you killed an animal, you could eat more than your fill, and it would sustain you for a while. But if you believe that God designed your body and made your body, he built into you this ability to eat more than you actually need. God not only made us to eat, but he gave us these. Anybody have a guess at what these are? Yeah, why do you know that? Yes, taste buds. That's a close-up of your taste buds. Uh, Here's a graphic that'll tell you that God has given us the ability to taste five, some people would say six, different things. The average person has 10,000 taste buds. God not only designed you to eat, he gave you the capacity to enjoy it, to have things that taste good. And what tastes good to you might not taste good to your neighbor. So you've got a body that's made to feast. And when God invents the first people, where does he place them? In a garden. Now, when you hear garden, you think decorative plants and flowers, and I'm sure there was some of that. But the garden that God designed and placed humanity in was a bit more like this. It was like an orchard. There were fruit-bearing trees all around. And if you read the Genesis account, it sounds like they were good to look at, And delicious to eat. And God said to the first people, you can have all you want. Just stay away from this one over here. It's kind of poisonous. It'll end up getting you in the end. And it does. In the very beginning, God made us to need to eat, to have the ability to eat a lot and to really enjoy it. And then he not only hardwires that into us, he puts us in a paradise that's full of food. So that's how it begins. After we leave the garden, after things go a little bit awry, in the next kind of era of history with God and humanity, in the Old Testament, God moves away from designing us to feast to actually commanding us to feast. In the next story of God and humanity in the next chapter, God decides to invite us to the table by creating a living example. He starts with an old man and his wife, and he says, look, I'm going to make a family, I'm going to make a people I'm going to make a nation that will show the whole world what it means to be in relationship with me. Starts with an old guy named Abram and his wife, Sarai. They later become Abraham and Sarah. And that simple family grows into the nation of Israel. And for a while, they wander around. For another series of time, about 430 years, they're slaves in Egypt. But God's promise has always been to make them a nation with their own land. 
the land that God gives the nation of Israel actually, give me that next slide, Sam, if you would, um, points to the fact that God intends for them to feast. Now, if you know the story of Israel, maybe some of you don't, that's great. If you don't, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, if, you, if you do know the story of the nation of Israel, they spent four centuries as slaves in Egypt, and then through a bunch of miracles, God released them to go to their own land, the promised land, named because it was the land God promised to give them. And although God intended for this to be a relatively short journey, they made it a long journey. But eventually, God is saying, look, I'm bringing you not only to your own territory, but I'm bringing you to a place where you can feast. Look at these verses from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 10. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. It's a land with rivers that don't dry up. There are springs and underground streams flowing through the valleys and the hills. The land has wheat and barley, grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates. The land has honey and olive trees for olive oil. The land will have enough food for you, and you will have everything you need. Now, if you've been living in the desert for 40 years, eating the same thing every day over and over, doesn't that sound great? Like, there's all kinds of varieties of food. There's savory. There's sweet. It's gonna, this land's going to sustain livestock. You're going to have all the protein you need. you need. Look at the next line. When you have eaten all you want... In our terms today, when you feasted, when you went out and gathered up every good thing and had all you want, the natural response is this, thank the Lord your God. God designed us to feast. He commanded us to feast. He gave Israel a land that would perpetuate their ability, not only to feast in relationship with him spiritually, but to feed themselves all they would need and more. God not only gives them a land that will let them feast, but he kind of prescribes a rhythm of life for them. We call this the Old Testament law. And maybe we think about the law as a bunch of do's and don'ts and and commandments, and there's probably some truth to that. I like to think of the law as God's kind of rhythm of life he's giving his people. And God, in the middle of that rhythm, embeds regular feasts. God gives the nation of Israel a Sabbath. A Sabbath. Now, um, when we hear Sabbath, we might be thinking, oh, that's the day you can't work. Like, isn't it funny how we often reduce things down to what you can't do? Like, oh, you can't work, you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything. Well, the Sabbath was not only a day of rest, it was a day of rejoicing. It was a day when people would stop their routines, they would gather with their friends and family, and they would eat really good food. Anybody heard of John Mark Comer? We have any John Mark Comer fans in here? Yeah, I I don't know if you've read some of the writing he's done about his family's journey with Sabbath. And a part of their ritual, they practice a Sabbath, a, a day of rest and delight each week. He says, look, when it comes to food, we make our favorite foods. We make this giant chocolate chip cookie, ice cream dessert, because that's a day we want to feast and remember how good our God is. And God's so good, he commands that they do it. Like, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Stop every week and delight. Stop every week and savor. Don't just rest your bodies. Take in the good things in life and let that point you back to how good your God is. Not only did they have a weekly Sabbath, but they had festivals and feasts. The Jewish people were told by God 
to practice seven annual festivals. And festivals sounds a lot like feast, right? They were, they were grouped in three groupings and, and three different times a year with seven unique kind of celebrations. They would stop, pause their usual life, go and have holy days, which sounds a lot like holidays. What do you do at holidays? You eat. And they would not only celebrate some, uh, some spiritual rhythms and rituals, but most of those feasts involve literal feasting. Let me show you how serious God is about this. Have you ever heard of the idea of a tithe? How many of you have heard of the idea of a tithe? Yeah, it's in the Old Testament. It's the idea that God tells Israel, whatever the Lord blesses you with, every tenth one belongs to him. Like if it's goats, every tenth goat belongs to the Lord. If it's vats of wine because you have a vineyard, every tenth vat belongs to the Lord. And, and God says, look, I want you to take a tenth and honor me with it. Give it back to me, right? And the people would take those offerings to Jerusalem. Well, the Jewish people did not just give one tithe. There was a second tithe. And it was a tithe that they were to save up so that when it was time to feast, they would be able to celebrate. It's described here in Deuteronomy chapter 14, picking up in verse 22. Every year, be sure to save a tenth of the crops harvested from whatever you plant in your fields. Eat the tenth of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and eat the firstborn of your cattle, sheep, and goats in the presence of the Lord your God in the place he will choose to put his name. These are not the offerings they'll give in the temple or give to the priests. This is the food you take with you. So that in those seven festivals, you can eat to your heart's delight. And then God continues. He gives some more detail. He says, then when you feast, you will learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live. However, because God's practical, he, he sees a situation where maybe life has been so good and God's been so good, you can't take it all with you. So he says, but the place the Lord your God may choose to put his name may be too far away. Or he may bless you with so much that you can't carry a tenth of your income that far. If so, exchange the tenth part of your income for silver. Take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Now catch this. This is how good God is. This is how much he wants you to feast Israel. He says, you take the silver and use the silver to buy whatever you want. Cattle, sheep, goats wine, liquor, whatever you choose, then you and your family will eat and enjoy yourselves there in the presence of the Lord your God. Like God is so serious about his people feasting. He says, look, I want you to treat it like an offering to me. I want you to save it so that when it's time to celebrate, you can get whatever you want. So in the beginning, God designs us to feast in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, he kind of commands feast. And then in the next era of human history with God and people, God begins to invite us to the feast. And he does so through a person, through the person of Jesus. Actually, first through John the Baptist and then through Jesus. Now, if you do some reading this summer, and we hope you'll do a lot of reading in the scriptures on your own this summer, I want to kind of issue you a challenge as you read, I want you to notice every time there's a reference to food or to the production of food, a meal, or some like metaphor or simile about food. 
If you would just put a little dot next to that in your Bible, you will find that by the end of the summer, man, you have made a lot of marks in your journal or in the scripture. Because over and over and over again in the life of Jesus, it's feast and food and, and savor and delight. In fact, we just finished the Easter season as Jesus people, right? We just celebrated the events of, of the Passion, the Passover, and the Resurrection. Here's just a quick summary. Look at all the different things that take place around food just at Easter. First, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, for the festival. And then as a part of that week-long kind of celebration, he has the Passover meal with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. They're at the table when he wants to symbolize covenant between God and us. He reaches for the cup. He reaches for the bread. Like, I want you to get this. I want you to taste how good your God is. On the cross, before Jesus dies, he speaks these words. I thirst. Like, God, I need to be quenched. And then after Jesus is taken down, after he's put in the tomb, after he comes back from the dead... He chooses to appear to two unnamed disciples as they walk from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And the disciples are heartbroken because they lost the one they thought was the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. And for some reason, whether Jesus was disguised physically, whether their grief was so heavy that they just didn't see clearly, Jesus walks with them. And he begins to connect the dots and say, look, this is exactly what God promised would happen all along. Like the Son of Man would be um, betrayed and arrested and, and killed and murdered. And then he would rise. And then Jesus sits down to dinner, and it's when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. Now, those two disciples, even though it took them all day to get to Emmaus, that very hour they get up and they run back to Jerusalem because they have to tell Jesus' friends, he's alive, it's good news. And while they're doing that, Jesus just shows up in the room. And, and they're like trying to come to grips with this idea, is he really alive? And so he says, yeah, put your hand in my wounds, like feel my side. And then he says, do you have something to eat? And they bring him a piece of broiled fish. Later on a beach, the disciples are out fishing, at least some of them are, and they haven't caught anything all night. And maybe they're fishing to generate income, but fish are also food. And Jesus appears on the shore, and he says, no, you got to put your nets on the other side of the boat. And they have a catch they just can't barely bring in. And when they get to shore, Jesus has a fire going, and he's already started breakfast for them. Now, that many kind of references to food just in Easter and the events leading up to it and right after. If you read the life of Jesus, you'll find that he has a lot of references that speak to hunger being filled. We see this in the events in Jesus' life. There are many significant moments in the life of Jesus um, that, that food is involved in and around. Okay, so maybe you know Jesus' story. He is baptized. The Father, uh, in the, through a heavenly voice and through the, the form of the Holy Spirit in a dove, speaks, this is my son whom I love. Do you know what Jesus does next? Like his first act of ministry the Spirit leads him into the desert to confront the enemy. And the preparation for that isn't to feast, but what? To fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the enemy comes with temptations. You know what one of those temptations was? 
turn these stones into bread. Yeah. Jesus' first miracle, where does it happen? At a wedding, at a feast, at a party. Like weddings for us are kind of one-day events or evening events or after. No, they were, they were multiple-day celebrations in the Jewish culture. And Jesus is there celebrating, and they run out of wine. And his mom guilts him, like all good mothers do, into fixing the situation. Jesus' most public miracles, seen by the greatest number of people, involve food. There are great crowds of people listening, thousands of men and likely women and children too. And at the end of the day, everybody's hungry. So what does Jesus do? He multiplies fish and loaves. If you know Jesus' story, maybe you know that he regularly was in conflict with the Jewish leaders. Often, those conflicts were about food. Hey, Jesus, why do your disciples eat with dirty hands? Because we like to ceremonially wash our hands. Hey, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. Why are your disciples picking heads of grain to eat them? Hey, Jesus, why are you at so many parties with the wrong kinds of people? In fact, in Luke 7, 34, Jesus kind of speaks back to them the reputation that he had. He said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunk and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It sounds like a guy who knew how to feast, doesn't it? Moment after moment in Jesus' life and ministry comes back to food. Many moments in Jesus' teachings touch in one way or another on food. So Jesus, trying to explain who he is, says things like, I'm the good shepherd. What's a shepherd do? Well, they protect the sheep and they feed the sheep. We'll come back to that later tonight. Jesus, trying to explain who he is, says, I am the bread of life. Or if you come to me, um, I'll give you living water. Or he looks out at a big crowd one time and he says, look, if you want to live, you have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. All these teachings, in fact, in my, just my own personal reading this week, I read the story about Jesus and the fig tree. I don't know if you know that one. Jesus is hungry because he was human like us. And he sees a fig tree that's kind of in leaf and it looks like it should have figs on it. And when he comes up, it doesn't. And so he curses the tree. And later that night, uh, they come back and the tree is completely withered. And he uses that moment to teach his disciples about faith and prayer. And how does it start? He's hungry. If you study the parables of Jesus, and people disagree on just how many parables there are, roughly half of them have to do with either food or farming or fishing or something, planting a vineyard or a party. Let me show you uh, an example where both of these ideas pop up in Luke chapter 24. Jesus uh, is actually feasting on the Sabbath. On a day of rest, this is verse 1, a holy day, Jesus went to eat at the home of a prominent Pharisee. Right? So this is a Sabbath day, and the Pharisee, who's a very religious man, had thrown a dinner, and he'd invited Jesus and his disciples. And in the dinner, Jesus uses the setting to teach. In verse 12, uh, Luke says, Then he told the man who had invited him, When you invite people for lunch or dinner, don't invite only your friends, family, or other relatives, or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they'll return the favor. Instead, when you give a banquet or a feast, invite the poor, 
the handicapped, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed because they don't have any way to pay you back. You will be paid back when those who have God's approval come back to life. So Jesus wants to teach about generosity and the others and those marginalized and who we love. And he uses the setting of the meal. It's like, guys, this is a perfect picture of God's heart toward those who are outside his family table. Somebody actually gets what Jesus is saying, and he asks them this question. Actually, not a question. He says to Jesus, the person who will be at the banquet in God's kingdom is blessed. So the folks who listen to Jesus had the idea that, that God's kingdom involved feasting. It's like a wedding celebration. There's a banquet that's coming in God's kingdom. And so Jesus takes that statement and, and weaves a story. We would call it a parable. And it really captures the heart of God. Jesus said to him, a man gave a large banquet and invited many people. When it was time for the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, everything's ready. And everybody asked to be excused. The first said to him, I bought a field and I need to see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five pairs of oxen and I'm on my way to see how well they plow. Please excuse me. Still, another said, I recently got married. That's why I can't come. The servant went back to report this to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. He told his servant, run to every street and alley in the city and bring back the poor, the handicapped, the blind, the lame. Go bring back the people who don't get any invitations to feast. Like just invite anybody. The servant said, sir, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room for more people. Then the master told his servant, and if you want to hear the heart of God for us, here it is. Go to the roads and paths. Urge the people to come to my house. I want it to be full. I want, there's room for everybody. I want everybody to come and feast. You're not, you don't have to be worthy. You don't have to have the right clothes. You don't have to have the right connections. Just come and feast. And through Jesus, God invites us to the kingdom table, right? Come and savor, come and delight, come and stuff yourself full to the brim. Now, that's not the final era in the story of man and God, because there's an era left to come. Not only does Jesus invite us to the feast in the New Testament, but God, as we speak, is planning a great feast for us in all eternity. If you go to the book of Revelation, it describes where things are headed. And more than once, the, new, the, the book of Revelation says we're headed toward a feast. This is Revelation 19, 6 to 9. I heard what sounded like the noise from a large crowd like the noise of raging waters, like the noise of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, has become king. Let us rejoice, be happy, and give him glory, because it's time for the marriage of the Lamb. His bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. She's been given the privilege of wearing dazzling pure linen. This fine linen represents the things that God's holy people do that have his approval. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the Lamb's wedding banquet. He also told me, those are God's true words. When God pictures the reunion of his church with him face to face, no barriers, sin is gone, death is gone, pain is gone, evil is vanished, it's a feast. 
Revelation 22 paints a vivid picture of heaven. And the good news is there's food there. This is Revelation 22, verses 1 to 2. The angel showed me a river filled with the water of life, as clear as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Between the street of the city and the river, there was a tree of life visible from both sides. It produced, because God loves variety and diversity, 12 kinds of fruit. Each month had its own fruit. The leaves of the tree will heal the nations. Like from beginning to end, here's God saying, I want you to come feast. I want to fill you up and then even more. I want you to savor. I want you to delight. Now, when I asked you to picture earlier uh, your version of a feast, go back to that for a second. Who made all that food in your vision? If it was a holiday uh, Thanksgiving meal, who cooks all that food? Mama does, that's right. In my life, it's this woman, or it has been this woman. This is a picture of my grandmother. Uh, I know, right? She went home to be with the Lord about six weeks ago, about three years shy of her 100th birthday. Uh, Her name is Beulah Turner, and she is from Breathitt County, Eastern Kentucky, a little holler named Altro, which has my hand to God, a swinging bridge, and a general store. That's all that's there, right? And, and my grandmother taught me a lot of things. She taught me about Jesus uh, in every way imaginable. But she also taught me about God's heart to see us feast. Because Beulah grew up in eastern Kentucky where there wasn't a lot of food, one of her greatest delights in the world was to set the table for people. In fact, this is taken at her kitchen table in the home that she and her husband built uh, that she lived in for about 60 years before she passed. And a whole lot of people have been at that family table. My grandmother had a small living room. If you came to see her, you would start in the living room, and and she would, you know, just kind of ask you how you were. And then she would say, do you want something to eat? And it didn't matter what your answer was. You were eating. Like, there is no way out of that house where you are not eating something, you know. And you would say, oh, Grandma, I just had lunch. And she would say, well, come in the kitchen. And then she would go get her apron, which was a lot more flowery than this one, right? And she would drape her apron over her head and tie it around, and she would go to work. And in a simple kitchen with, like, a basic electric stove, when you weren't that hungry, in 30 minutes, you would have fried chicken and biscuits and gravy, and green beans, and I'm not going to make you miserable, blah, blah. Like, in 30 minutes, there was a feast. And heaven forbid you try to eat one helping. Like, that's not going to cut it. Like, before you even were done, there's more. uh, And she just knew. Like, I want to set the table. And so I was preaching her funeral about six weeks ago. We were talking about this. It was just our family there, which was like 100 people. We had a big family Uh, And we kind of agreed, if you left Beulah's house hungry, it's your fault. Because her heart is to feed you. Her heart is to nourish you. Her heart is to put delicious things in front of you that delight your taste buds. And she did it for probably thousands of people in her lifetime. Friends, this is the heart of God for us. He sets the table. And if we go away hungry probably our fault. Listen, um, thank you for the chance to just kind of give that introduction this morning. Uh, At our session tonight, we will get very practical about how we feast, 
Like, what does it look like to feast um, as God's people on the things that God provides for us? Uh, and, and in between now and then, you're going to have some fantastic breakout sessions, and I hope you'll go hungry. hope you'll take some great notes. Most of all, I hope you will listen to what the Lord wants to say to you, because blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. Don't go away hungry today. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that from beginning to end, you just provide for us. You lead us to delight in good things so that our heart will be drawn back to you. So, Father, we come hungry today. Um, some of us are, are, are keenly aware of our hunger. For others of us, it's kind of latent, and it's waiting to be stirred up and, and kind of brought to the forefront today. Lord, we pray that that will happen. Lord, you know what we need. Feed us today. Fill us up. That's our prayer in Jesus' name.